Someone who didn't know me very well might have looked at my life and exclaimed that it was a great success, that I seemed to have it all. But what they would have failed to see was that the paradox of how my achievements and its consequential success was fueled by my deep inadequacy, unhappiness and low self-esteem. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Comfort Zone, the podcast that redefines personal and professional development, guiding you through change the easy way so that you can live your best life. And my name is Adam Kowalik. In my last episode, I briefly mentioned Alfred Adler and the founding of individual psychology. The context in which this was mentioned was when I was unpacking the entanglement of interpersonal relationships and to not confuse people's opinions as truths about one's own self-worth. Instead, I invited you to see that we're all worthy and we all matter on an equal level. I wanted to continue on this thread a bit and I wanted to talk about the paradox of low self-worth among us high achievers. Have you ever thought that the reason for someone being so successful is perhaps because they are so miserable? You don't have to make that connection, do you? When you see or imagine someone successful, you think to yourself that they have it all figured out. They must possess the secrets to the game of life somehow. They simply have it all. Well, perhaps this is just me, my own thoughts, when I see someone successful. The paradox that I wanted to highlight and point out today is this strange relationship with achievement, ambition, success and misery, unhappiness and anxiety. A long time ago, I had a conversation with a client who when talking about his own ambitions, made a reference to the American tennis player John McEnroe, who is known for his confrontational on-court behaviour, which often got him in trouble. John McEnroe is an incredible tennis player with an awe-inspiring record and stats and simply one of the greats. My client had seen a recent interview with McEnroe where he had been asked by the interviewer about the success of McEnroe's children who also played tennis but hadn't achieved the same level of success as their father. McEnroe was asked why he thought that that could be the case, since his children, bearing his genes, having access to the best coaches, trainers and equipments in the world, and yet not doing as well as him. McEnroe was quick to answer because they lack hunger. The hunger to succeed. He went on to explain that when he used to play, he would train as if there was no tomorrow and if he lost a game, he would punish himself by not eating. He would make himself need to win to crave it. Please keep in mind that I am paraphrasing here and I am referencing an interview that was retold to me by my client. I didn't watch it myself. and. There might be a nuance that I missed or were left out out of the retelling of the story. Either way, 
Growing up with a tennis playing father and a cousin who played semi-professionally, I actually did know about John McEnroe and his typical attitude and from my limited familiarity, it did sound somewhat consistent with what I knew about him. I pointed out to my client at the time that for every McEnroe, there might be millions of people who, fueled with the same kind of hunger, simply starved, self-imploded. They couldn't make it. But we don't hear their stories, do we? Instead, we only hear about those hero stories, these grit and self-punishing rise to success stories, thinking that that is the way to success. I'd like to take a moment and invite you to pause for a moment and imagine that hunger that McEnroe was talking about. The self-inflicted pain that he would impose only to make himself even more motivated to succeed. To me, it sounds like a lot of misery, suffering, and surely lots of performance anxiety. I mean, where's the fun? Where's the excitement and the love for the game? I've seen this before, in my own life, in my professional career where I was far too ambitious for my own good, and I paid for it with my health, well-being, relationships and happiness. Someone who didn't know me very well might have looked at my life and exclaimed that it was a great success, that I seemed to have it all. But what they would have failed to see was that the paradox of how my achievements and its consequential success was fueled by my deep inadequacy unhappiness, and low self-esteem. One's self-esteem consists of two elements, according to the late psychologist Nathaniel Brandon, who dedicated his whole life to the topic. One of the elements is self-competence, and the other element is self-respect, or self-worth. So your self-concept and self-esteem is about whether you believe you're competent and worthy. Nathaniel Brandon used to say that in order to have a healthy self-esteem, both elements need to be high. If one is low, it will make your self-esteem unbalanced and lower than desired. When your self-worth is low, a typical coping mechanism is to overcompensate by maximizing your self-competence, becoming really, really good at what you do, and in so doing, hopefully earn your worth by what you can produce. When this becomes the main strategy for establishing your self-worth, it can easily get out of hand because there's always more things that can be done, more things to produce, better things to achieve, more records to be broken, etc. When is it enough? Don't get me wrong. Ambition is an amazing thing. It's what separates us from other animals, or part of the same animal kingdom. Ambition has given us life-changing inventions like science, medicine, technology, architecture, the moon landing, and even this podcast. But when ambition is fueled by an insatiable hunger, it risks crossing a line where the pursuit becomes a never-ending cycle of suffering. If you only feel worthy through doing, producing or achieving, 
you will never allow yourself to arrive, to finish. I mean, if you stopped doing, you'd stop being worthy, right? An article from Psychology Today lists six subtle signs to tell if you're a high achiever with low self-esteem. They say the first sign, you don't see yourself as deserving of support. You think you should be able to handle everything on your own. The second sign, you think it's reasonable for other people to make mistakes on the road to success, but not for you. You expect yourself to be good at everything without practice or even experience, even for the things you simply lack skills for. The third sign, you find a way to blame other people's mistakes on yourself. When something unfortunate happens due to someone else's actions or decisions, you still manage to somehow make it your fault. Fourth sign. It's easier for you to think of what you haven't achieved than what you have. You fall into the trap of comparing yourselves to others. And comparison is the killer of joy. You focus more on the negative than the positive. Fifth sign. You feel embarrassed in situations that don't warrant embarrassment. For example, your child is sick or experiencing a challenge and you feel embarrassed by that. Sixth sign. You've never really considered that your worth isn't directly tied to your achievements. You mistakenly believe that what you do is somehow related to who you are or to your self-worth. You're only worthy of the matching level of your accomplishments or achievements. It's this last sign that I often observe in overachievers. It's what was most present for me in my own struggles where I derived my own self-worth only from what I was able to accomplish, show or prove to my superiors. My good friend and colleague, Josef, is a brilliantly skilled online fitness coach who has built not one, but two careers on an all-or-nothing mentality, which is a typical attitude among over-ambitious people. In his first career as a professional athlete competing in men's physique and classic bodybuilding and becoming a Nordic champion, he built and sculpted his body and mind to give it all, which came at a cost. And his second career is built on helping other all-or-nothing individuals to find better balance without having to make unnecessary compromises. Years ago, Yosef talked with me about his experience and a concept that he referred to as why strong people break. And coming from a guy who's literally a strong guy with superhuman achievements, it made so much sense to me. The idea why strong people break is that they do what they know how to do. To give it all, they push, they fight, they power through, they don't give up. And so eventually, hopefully, they can climb the winner's podium and claim their victory. Only, they are miserable doing it. They are suffering while doing it. And having achieved what they set out to achieve, they feel empty, depleted and deflated. What's the goal behind the goal? What's next? There's no end to the struggle. Ambition is about the future, a strong desire to achieve something. Per definition, it means it's not yet achieved. So you're coming from a place of not having it already. So you chase. 
the place in which you're currently in isn't good enough since you don't have what you desire for yourself. With a low self-worth, you'll struggle with seeing how you are already worthy enough just as you are. A teaching from Alfred Adler that came alive with the help of the Japanese authors Ichiro Kishimi and Fumitake Koga in their phenomenal book The Courage to be Disliked highlights the point I'm trying to make in this episode. If you were ever to fall into a coma for whatever reason, do you believe people close to you wouldn't care if you lived or died? If it's true that you're only as worthy as what you can produce or do, then if you're in a coma, your worth should cease to be, right? You can't produce much from a comatose state. And if you actually took a moment to ponder the question I posed just now, if people would care if you lived or died if you were in a coma, then I am sure you realize that people indeed would care. Despite your inability to do something, to achieve something, people would still value you. You being alive would still be something they valued and preferred. What this points to is that your worth has nothing to do with what you do. You being born is already being worthy enough. You're already fulfilling a purpose. As a human being, one of the human species' strengths is in our numbers. Our survival is dependent on our numbers. As a species, we don't do very well alone or by ourselves. Physically as well as psychologically, we're not well equipped to be by ourselves. You know this to be true. It's why one of the worst punishments we can come up with is isolation. And people living in isolation don't live as long or as healthy lives as people with meaningful and healthy relationships. Our species thrives in numbers. It's how we get to do all the amazing things we've done together. I mean, I didn't build this device that you're listening to this podcast on. I didn't invent the microchip or the internet. I didn't sew my own clothes, build the roof over my head or farm the food in my belly. Chances are, you didn't either. We're not independent or separate from one another. On the contrary, we rely on each other for not only our survival, but for our thriving. As a species, we are worthy because we were born. We generate worth by adding to the numbers, and in so doing, we are increasing our chance for survival. You're born with an innate worth, a worth that isn't defined by what you do. Your sole existence is worth enough. Now, I get it that we're perhaps not as reliant on increasing our numbers for survival as we once were thousands of years ago. And so this wisdom has become lost to us and replaced by other means of signaling worth. And in a world that is so overly reliant on the materialistic, of course we will measure worth by performance, accomplishment, achievement or success. But I'm here to remind you of a universal truth that you're already worthy, just as you are. You being you is precious enough. I started this conversation by talking about the two elements of self-esteem, self-competence and self-worth. 
And the way that I've come to see it is that self-worth is innate and intrinsic. It comes from within and can't be taken away. It's yours. In fact, I'd argue it's constant since it's innate, it's ever-present. And the self-competence piece is about the outer game, the game of life. It's about your personal growth and contribution. It's about adventure and joy. You don't have to be good or great at anything. It's that you get to be good and even great at something if you want to. How fun is that? And at the end of the day, you get to relax into the fact that you're good either way. You're enough, you're whole and complete. You're worthy as you are. Thanks for listening to Inside the Comfort Zone with me, Adam Kowalik, and I'll be back next week with another regular episode. If you like the show, please follow and rate it on Spotify. And if you have a friend who you think should hear what we spoke about today, please share it with them. The best way to get the episode as soon as possible is to subscribe to Inside the Comfort Zone via Spotify or whatever podcast app you like to use. Check out some of the previous episode by visiting insidethecomfort.zone. Visit the website insidethecomfort.zone or click the link in the show notes for a chance to send me your questions and feedback as a voice message. And with your permission, if it's valuable for our listeners, your content might be featured in an upcoming episode. Inside the Comfort Zone was brought to you by Adam Kowalik, life coach, speaker and author on a mission to redefine personal and professional development. Thank you for being you and please keep it up. Talk more soon.